Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, Tim Sylvie here with another episode of the Motormouth F1 podcast. And this week, we're joined by one of the most prolific F1 journalists out there. Glenn Freeman has worked for the biggest racing publishers in the whole of motorsport, and he now finds himself editor-in-chief at the race. It's not been an easy road, though, for Glenn, as we find out in this episode. I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but Glenn received a devastating diagnosis when he was told he had blood cancer. And the way he speaks about his experience is refreshing and it's an important message to everyone, but in particular us men who tend to ignore such symptoms, much like Glenn did, to the point where he lost a huge amount of weight and eventually passed out on his way back from a football match watching his beloved Spurs. He still didn't pay attention to those signs until his wife made him get checked out. He then found out he had blood cancer. He got cured, he's got a second chance at life and he's embracing every minute. This is a refreshing and honest conversation about his life, career, his thoughts, and F1 opinions. I really hope you enjoy the show. One more thing before we get into it. Sorry to delay the interview. A quick apology. Uh, During this recording, my dog gets spooked by something in the garden. She's downstairs, I'm upstairs, and she barks incessantly throughout my uh, conversation Um, in this episode of the show. Huge apologies for that. I hope it's not too distracting. If you're not listening with headphones, you might not even hear it. If you are, you probably will. But enjoy Pip, my dog, and the show. Let's get on with it. Glenn, thanks for joining us. How are you and where are you dialing in from today? I'm good, thanks, Tim. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. I'm dialing in from my office at home, which doubles up as a shrine to Jacques Villeneuve. It's weird. I was looking at your socials earlier, and I think in one of your biogs, it says um, something about uh, like CEO of the Jacques Villeneuve um, uh, fan club. President President of the fan club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you're obviously a big fan. What what is it about Villeneuve that you love so much? Um. It's, it's a question that gets harder to answer the more time goes on, but it does stem back to before he got into F1. So I started following uh, IndyCar racing in the early 90s, just before Nigel Mansell went there, became obsessed with it when Mansell went there. 
And then Nigel was having a difficult time in his second year. And I spotted there was a rookie with the surname Villeneuve. Now, I wasn't old enough to have watched Gilles race, but I knew all about him. So I kind of looked into this Villeneuve name that was on the grid, found out it was his son and just became kind of fascinated by him. He became a fan then. He he won a race that year as a rookie. And I became a big fan from that point. He obviously had an amazing following year, won the Indy 500 and the championship. Uh, and then went to F1. So as my fandom grew, he then went to F1, which I was even more interested in and just became a kind of loyal and obsessive. Uh, somewhere in this office, I've still got the Canadian flag that I would take to Silverstone <laughs> and wave around and that. And yeah, then as his uh, career has declined or uh, did decline, uh, you stick with people out of loyalty. You really. do, you do. He's a polarising character though, isn't he? I mean, he's not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah, no, I... I don't agree with everything he says, but I like the fact that he's prepared to say what he thinks and he's interesting. I think he knows he has some value in in being a bit outrageous sometimes with what he says. Yeah, no, I agree. And and to be honest, it's nice that, you know, there's someone in the media or who's now in media that isn't towing the line and isn't, you know, saying just what everyone expects them to say, but deviates, which is good. It's nice to have different opinions. Now, you're a prolific motorsport guy. You're a media guy. You've worked with the likes of Motorsport News, Autosport, the Motorsport Network, and obviously more recently editor-in-chief at the race. Before we get into all of that, I want to find out what's shaped you as a human. What sort of led you to that point? What is it that you can point to in your formative or, or childhood years um, that, are, that are the foundations that have led to this passion for racing and the career that you now have? It's, um, <clears throat> I think I can trace it all the way back to one moment, which I recently found out was when I was 14 or 15 months old. Uh, I was on a ho- family holiday with my parents in Malta. And there was a kid, a slightly older kid. I think he was six. Um, And I would play around with him at the hotel and on the beach and stuff. Uh, And he had these two toy F1 cars, um, a little red Ferrari and a little green Alfa Romeo. It was the Benetton livery Alfa Romeo. Tiny things. Uh, And I wanted those cars. They were in the gift shop at the hotel. So my parents got me them. And then for about a year and a half, I just played religiously with these cars. Didn't know where they were from or what they were. And then when I was three, my dad was channel hopping around the four channels that you had back then. This is 1989. And I saw F1 cars. And my parents tell me that I looked up whilst playing with the cars on the floor and I shouted, my cars, my cars, put my cars on. So they put it on and I sat there for two hours and watched the Grand Prix. And I'm told that was the first time in my three years of life up to that point that I'd sat still for a prolonged period of time. So my parents thought they were onto something. They recorded the highlights and whenever they needed me to sit still they put them on um and it just went from there i never missed a race since as the french grand prix of 1989 but there was no motorsport background or interest in my family at all um so it kind of came from nowhere just from those toy cars i think and i recently found those cars so oh, wow they're they're in my office uh, and i plan to get a little case for them because i consider those cars to be responsible for basically everything that's happened in my life since it's so weird what resonates with kids isn't it i mean it, you know for you to actually feel that sort of affinity to those little cars and then seeing them on tv and how it's spiraled since then and you've not you've not missed a race since have you you've watched every single f1 race since you were basically a toddler yeah, yeah. So yeah, I could say it was the summer rise three in eighty nine, and yeah, religiously watched every race since, either as a fan and obviously in more recent years through uh, being a fan and work purposes as well. That's amazing. So, do you know how many F one races you've been to physically? Um, it's it's not that 
many because I didn't do that many Grand Prix for work purposes. I did three British Grand Prix as a fan. I did a San Marino Grand Prix and I've probably worked somewhere between five and ten of them. That's a lie because I, I covered GP2 for a year. So I was at a load of Grand Prix then as well. So yeah, maybe 20, something like that. Yeah, no, it's interesting. you need to get to more races. I mean, it, you know, being such a, a super fan, you sort of feel like you should be uh, you should be in the paddock somewhere. Um, now, you joined the race, what, three years ago? Something like that? Three, four years ago. I don't know. I've at, lost count already. At the begin- fairly near the beginning. How did yeah, that opportunity come about? Did, and, and when it did, I guess it was Andrew Vandenberg that... that contacted you and asked you to be involved um uh what did you think at that early stage when you saw the formation of this new media company in motorsport and did you expect it to grow as quickly as it did it's impossible to predict the last part of that question you, you have you have no idea when the opportunity arose uh, i'd been at autosport for a long time by that point but in the summer as some people know in the summer of 2019 before the race was set up, I was diagnosed with uh, a form of leukemia, a form of blood cancer. And that gives you, uh, you take stock of everything in your life at that point. Like, fortunately, I, I had a type of uh, blood cancer that can be treated. So I just take a tablet every day and I back to normal. I live my life as normal. But yeah, I was quite unwell in that summer. Um, so what we have, something like that is such a cliche, but it does make you kind of take stock. And I decided that maybe my time at Autosport might be kind of coming to end or drawing to a close. And it was also very stressful. Uh, It was a stressful period for work and personal life for those reasons. So I, towards the end of 2019, I just sort of, uh, I resigned and took some time off. I thought I need, I need to kind of look after myself um, and, and have a think, (laughs) Uh, about about things and I you know I did the thing that we all do when you're maybe looking around for jobs so I, I got a lot more active on LinkedIn um, and was exploring opportunities inside and outside of motorsport I sort of had four or five different jobs I was eyeing up and then I found out about the race actually through Darren Cox who was involved early on um, and yeah I liked the idea of being involved in something at the start and and, and being able to help shape it so I didn't really go in with any ambitions of how big it could be because I'd always been at places that had been around for decades before I got there. Mm. So, uh, but I, I liked the idea of, of the fresh start and trying to do something different and trying to, to do it our way. And I, I do, I often wonder without the perspective that I felt my diagnosis gave me uh, six months before that, would I have kind of taken that chance? I, and I don't know. I don't want to drag up painful memories but equally you bring up an important point around cancer and you know especially men's health you know we're useless at talking about our own health if you don't mind answering how did you figure out that something was wrong yeah i mean the my story backs up what you just said there perfectly um i it turned out i had loads of symptoms that i was ignoring for about six months and i only went and saw a doctor i actually called 111 the the phone line we have over here for the nhs because my wife forced me to. She said, you're not right. You've got to go and see someone about this. Whereas I kept being like, oh, if I felt ill, I was like, oh, it's just a bug, I'll get better. One issue was that I I lost a lot of weight. I think I lost about 14 kilos within about four or five months. Uh, and I've shared pictures, I've shared before and after pictures on social media before, and it's, it's quite scary. 
The reason I didn't pick up on that at first was because I was trying to lose weight in the first part of that year. And I always say, I just thought it was working for once. Um, so I think if, I, if it hadn't been for that, I would have gone, why am I getting so skinny? There must be something wrong. Um, and the story I always tell is that the first time I got really ill with it was on the way home from watching uh, Spurs, Tottenham, lose the Champions League final to Liverpool in 2019. I watched that at the Spurs stadium on big screens. Just during the game, I started to feel really ill, which I thought was just a bad reaction to Spurs losing, <laughs> losing the biggest game of my lifetime. But then I, I, I almost blacked out on the train home. I sort of had to crawl out of a train station and sit there sipping a water for an hour before calling a taxi and all this. And, you know, it was still another six weeks before I called a doctor. So, yeah, to your point about men aren't good at this stuff and admitting when there might be something wrong, that was my story completely. Uh, so it's very lucky. And But during that point, when you're like blacking out, did you still think, oh, it's nothing, it's just one of those things, this is fine? Or was it like, I know deep down something's really wrong here, but I'm just going to ignore it? With instances like that, I ended up being really ill that night and I just assumed it was a stomach bug. We had we had our daughter, our first child then, was about eight or nine months old. So when there's a baby in the house, there's always illnesses and stomach bugs in the house. And she would quite often have a sickness bug around the same time I was feeling particularly ill. So we just thought uh, I was getting what she had. Um, but there, yeah, there were stupid things. Like one of the big signs that you might have a form of leukemia or blood cancer is night sweats, like really bad night sweats. I had those for ages and we were changing mattresses, changing um, duvets and that sort of thing, sleeping with the windows open. Again, just ignoring the signs or looking for an excuse. And it got to the point where um, my my spleen, your spleen expands when you have this diagnosis. And they told me it's supposed to be the size of a fist and mine was the size of a football. And that pushes Jeez. everything else out of the way. So there's no room for like your stomach and that sort of thing. So I'd eat one bite of a meal and instantly feel bloated. Uh, your stomach doesn't feel right inside. And again, I'm just always going, oh, it must just be something else. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's stupid and naive. So I now try to talk about this. I'm very comfortable and happy talking about it because I hope one day someone else sees what I ignored, realizes maybe they've got that and they, they get treatment early and, you know, maybe we can save some lives um, by more people uh, being more aware than I was. Yeah, you've got to be vigilant, haven't you? And it's even like, so I, I, me and uh, Harry, Harry Benjamin, you, you probably know who he co-hosts this show sometimes. Um, and uh, we were together the other day, we were talking about business and stuff. And he, ha I saw in his calendar, he had check balls. <laughs> like at <laughs> it, a particular point in his diary, I was like, bloody hell, what's that? He's like, well, it's important, isn't it? You know, you've got to do it. I was like, fair play, you know. So he, he's, right. he's got a reminder. So I suppose we do have to be vigilant, us blokes, and, um, and make sure that we keep an eye on ourselves and look after each other. And, um, um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think it's it's an important message, and if it helps one person that listens to this, then then that's uh, that's great. Um, now, bringing it back to racing, was there um, was there ever a time where you thought I want to be a racing driver as opposed to writing about it? Yes, uh, from uh, that sunny afternoon in July 1989 till about 2005, when I became a journalist and. Uh, realized that uh, maybe the career uh, as a driver wasn't for me for budget and talent reasons. So yeah, I spent my entire childhood being a wannabe racing driver. Yeah, but budget and talent reasons. Those are two fairly large reasons. You can't really get around those. 
No, you can't. I mean, the talent thing's an annoying one, though, because I, I've been karting loads and I organise a karting event a couple of times a year. I'm fully into the karting scene. And I've been karting with F1 drivers, former F1 drivers. I went karting with Liam Lawson. He came along I, with Max Chilton, who, by his own admission, was not the most spectacular F1 driver of all time. But I tried to follow him in a kart and it's impossible. He, I was doing exactly what he was doing curbs in the same way breaking in the same spots and just disappeared into the distances i think you know there's an element of yes you can learn these things but some people have just got that innate talent haven't they yeah and uh it's i'm sure i'm sure what's interesting there obviously you said i was doing exactly what he was doing when you know the the result would suggest that that it wasn't you probably weren't but the, no. the margins are so fine no. um you know i i raced carts for 10 years um and had a great time wouldn't change that experience for the world uh I, th- I think it helps it helps me in my job now you know when when we have to comment on things about racing dynamics and and that and you get people get angry with your opinion on an incident between two drivers but when you've you've done it even at that level for a long time it gives you a completely different perspective that as even you, you will know from being as involved in karting as you are if you haven't sat in any sort of cockpit you just you don't have that perspective yeah yeah, no, absolutely. Now, can you pinpoint anyone or anything that's had an impact on your career? You know, is there is there a person you've looked up to over the years when you got into the journalism side of things or a business or perhaps it's just like me, you're just learning through complete cock-ups and learning how to adapt and change and get better? What, what's, the, what's the scenario for you? There's definitely been plenty of those. I think <laughs> if, if you... You do. I've been doing this 18 years now. If I'd got this far without making cock-ups, I wouldn't, I'm not trying hard enough. Uh, but I think uh, for my career, I was probably most conditioned by the, the very first team I worked in at Motorsport News, the editorial team they had back then. Uh, the editor was a guy called Tim Bowdler. Uh, Matt Burt was there, who's still in the sort of car industry. Matt James, who's now the editor of Motorsport News. All these guys, it was a... It was a tough, no-nonsense upbringing, but that's the sort of environment that I think was good for me. That they, they didn't, they didn't take, they, they didn't suffer falls. They didn't let you get away with mistakes. They gave you a hard time if you messed stuff up. And <laughs> I consider it sometimes almost unfortunate. I respond quite well to that sort of feedback and pressure. Um, so those guys were the perfect environment for me. I don't know if that environment would be allowed now i'm not sure many people would like no. somewhere that was that harsh it was never unfair but it was very harsh simon aaron the late simon aaron was another one he'd come in once a week he'd quite often sub my stuff on a friday and he'd bring me over and he'd talk me through the things i was doing wrong and it was sometimes it was brutal but it was all valid and i it meant that my first kind of year and a half in the job while i was at mn i think my rate of progress was very very rapid because those guys never let me off the hook for anything yeah yeah and it's a very different working environment these days isn't it now you host the bring back v10s podcast um that leads me to believe you're keen on a certain era of racing perhaps one where it's a little less hybrid a little less electric um a bit more raw combustion power can you though pinpoint your favorite formula one era it's kind of a cliche answer but i think it is the early years that i watched so the end of the 80s and the start of the 90s just because that's when that's when you fall in love with with it whatever makes you fall in love with any passion that you have will always be kind of your favorite time i think so i loved the early years i thought the cars were 
were gorgeous. Uh, I love the sound of them. I love the soundtrack of Murray Walker and James Hunt talking over the races. And and I liked the kind of up to the refueling era. When refueling came in in 1994, it changed the racing in a way that I didn't necessarily like as much because there wasn't as much overtaking on track. It was all done through strategy. So it's it's the yeah the end of the 80s and the start of the 90s. And I don't consider that a particularly original answer because it's the first few years that I watched F1. But yeah, that's... If I see image it, photos or video of that time now, I still get the warm, fuzzy feeling that I would have had when I was a kid. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that one. Um, Formula One doesn't stand still. It, it changes its regulations often. We've got some big changes coming in 2026. Are you a fan of this direction of travel? Do you think these changes coming in 2026 are going to be a good thing? And for those who may not know, could you just break down the main ones for us? The change, the changes I like that are coming for 2026, that they're going to make the cars smaller. So they're they're trying to take some weight out of them, and they are shortening them. Like if you if you if you see an F1 car now, if you get to stand near one, they're ridiculously long, and they don't need to be that long. Um, it, it just it's just a way for the teams kind of to package them for aerodynamic benefits. So I like the idea they're going to enforce a shorter wheelbase because you look at pictures of the cars even from 20 years ago, and they look like kind of mean little fighting machines. Mm. Uh, they're, nim- they're nimble. They're not nimble anymore. They're phenomenal. The performance is incredible. They're, they're, the grip they have in the corners is amazing, but they are not nimble. And through kind of slower corners or tighter chicanes where drivers used to be able to chuck them around, almost like a car. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Oh, we were talking about carting earlier. You can't do that anymore, so... It'll, it'll only be a small step. Like if they take out 30 or 50 kilos, it's not going to make a huge difference to the untrained eye, but it will help and it will stem the the kind of tide of where we've been going for over 15 years now, really, of making and, the cars And bigger. I suppose it might help certain, certain tracks that the modern day F1 cars haven't been suitable for, you know, Monaco being the obvious one, you know, having, having a nimble car around there potentially could make for better racing, yeah? Yeah, it's been a long time since you've had good racing around Monaco. So I think they'd have to put them in carts for us to get proper racing. Or Formula E gets overtaking uh, in Monaco because the racing's different. But yeah, I think it would make the cars more raceable in general if, if they were lighter. The other changes, there will be aero changes. We don't necessarily know what those are yet, but they're going to they're gonna take the learnings from this current rule set that we have that was a big departure from where we were before. And already the teams are working out how to kind of claw back what they had before. So uh, I guess F1 feels it does need that reset to go, actually, no, the goal is still the same uh, as it should have been in 2022, but we've learned more about what to change. And then 
as you mentioned, the, the power units will change more, more electric uh, energy to keep the manufacturers happy and get rid of the MGUH, uh, which is convoluted and of no real benefit to anybody. Yeah. You've got to love all the, the F1 jargon, haven't you? Mm. Um, that's that all makes perfect sense it's it's going to change the sport irrevocably it's it's obviously um it's going to reset it as you say that formula one loves to reset the, the the rule makers love to change everything and see what happens what there's no other sport where where this seems to go on where you know every five or six years they go right now everyone stop we're going to change everything you've got to relearn how to do this why is f1 so obsessed with wholesale regulation changes every five or six years i think in the modern era they're constantly trying to recreate what happened in 2009 where they had massive rule changes and it completely shook the field up you know mclaren and ferrari went from fighting for a championship to struggling down the back uh braun the braun story they came from nowhere honda had been rubbish the year before and then braun's winning they had the rise of red bull it, it, it was carnage from a kind of competitive landscape point of view. I think F1's been chasing that holy grail ever since, not understanding that it was quite a specific set of circumstances that created that in 2009. The rule changes we've had since haven't really done that. 2014, yes, Mercedes stole a march, but they were the second or third best team the year before. Uh, Red Bull only fell back a little bit. 2017, nothing really changed. Ferrari took a little step forward. 2022, the Red Bull wasn't bad in 2021, was it? And, and then they just became the best team and Mercedes fell back a bit. So the changes are more minor. In the early years, they used to change the rules to slow the cars down. You know, when it was less regulated, technology advances and understanding of aero and that sort of thing just meant the cars were getting so much faster. They were too fast for the tracks. It was too dangerous. Now I feel like they changed the rules sometimes to try and improve the racing. That was the aim in 2022. But also I think they're just hoping that they can shake the order up uh, and one day get get a real big switch like you had in 2009. But I think that's a little misguided. Yeah. And and changing the order up is obviously something that everyone's talking about at the moment with the dominance of Max Verstappen. And I'm not even going to bother talking to you about that because it's been done to death and and, and everyone has an opinion on it. Um, my personal opinion is good for him. Like he's, he's absolutely dominating. In years to come, we'll look back at this and marvel. But behind him... Who do you see as the is perhaps the next Max Verstappen or, or the next challenger that can really make an impact in our sport? We've got the likes of Piastri obviously doing really, really well and impressing a lot of people in McLaren. Is he the one or is there other talent in the current grid or perhaps even not on the current F1 grid that you could see coming through in the next few years? I think Piastri's one of a group. Uh, I think he's, he's now proven. Firstly, he's proven that he was worth all the effort and all the hype of last year. Uh, you know, for, for a driver who was on the sidelines to become the biggest story in the way he did. You have to deliver after that. And now and now he is. But I think he and Lando Norris are a great pairing. Uh, and then I think uh, George Russell, who's obviously giving Lewis Hamilton a hard time. Uh, and Charles Leclerc still. Uh, he has his speed, particularly over one lap, is without question. He maybe needs to knock off some of the rough edges. But I think that's the group. If, if, if F1 closes up competitively, the idea of those guys for a number of years, kind of being at the front, um, being the next generation that can lead F1. I think F1's in very good hands with those guys. There's some real talent there. Okay, if you were, uh, if you're Toto Wolf and you've got unlimited funds and big budget and you've got those four, that little group um, to pick from, who's your two? That's a great question. Uh, Leclerc would definitely be one of them. Um, 
Norris, Leclerc and Norris. Leclerc and Norris. I think Leclerc's an interesting choice because it. I guess I mean you're you're fully immersed in this sport. You watch it all the time. You know it more than more than most. Some may argue that Leclerc hasn't hasn't performed at his best over recent years. Why do you think he deserves a seat in your two driver team? I may be partly conditioned by the fact that um, <clears throat> when I covered World Series by Renault in 2014, uh, one of the support series was the Formula Renault Euro Cup, Renault Two Litre. He turned up and did a couple of guest appearances that year. And in one race, I think it was a wet race in Hungary or something, he came from the back of the grid to finish third. And I didn't even know who he was. And I just went, whoa, who is this guy? So then I followed I followed his entire career really closely. I've been impressed all the way through. Um, he has made heavy weather of this year at times. Uh, and I think last year he made mistakes that ended the title fight earlier than it should have. I don't think he threw away a championship, but... You know, Max has said he knew by France when Leclerc crashed there, he knew he had the championship. And I think that's true. I think this year's Ferrari doesn't suit him and the best drivers should be able to adapt. Uh, but I think if if the Ferrari's a better car and better suited to him next year, I think you can kind of reclaim dominance from Carlos Sainz in that championship. Sainz is another driver I've covered and I'm really pleased to see doing well. And then the Norris Piastri thing is really interesting because three months ago, you just said Lando and nobody would ask you any questions, but Piastri's really put him under pressure now. And I think Norris is still the quicker driver, but he is going to have to up his game. Uh, and that's a good thing. That'll be good for his development. Yeah, absolutely. And while, while we're, we're putting people against each other, I want to do the same, but with your podcast. So in, in the, the race podcasting world, there's loads of different podcasts and, and there are some really impressive people and journalists who are uh, sharing a microphone with you got the likes of Ed Straw hugely well respected and Scott and various others um who who if you had a competition between you on F1 knowledge who's the pinnacle who's the one you're you're like yeah that guy he's he knows everything there's nothing he doesn't know and you obviously can't say yourself I wouldn't pick myself anyway uh <laughs> I, I think it's Ed I think Ed Ed probably retains the most useless information of all of us, uh, but he retains the useful stuff as, as well. So we're actually um, we're doing a, a Bring Back V10's Christmas quiz episode soon. And I'm really, really happy that I'm hosting it because I get to yep. put the questions together and I'm not put on the spot to have to answer them. Uh, Ed will be in one of the teams uh, that's in that quiz. And yeah, I think he'll be a formidable opponent. He will. He, he, he knows his onions, that man. Um, I want to look at the the current media landscape in Formula One. There's obviously the big players like the race, like Racer Magazine, Autosport, the network and so on. There's the rights holders like Formula One who have their writers. And there's also tons of small independent publishers on the web or YouTube or social. Um, some of some of which has spawned this sort of plagiarizing epidemic. You know, we often see, I think even at the race, there's, there's videos that get regurgitated with this sort of robotic voice over the top of it claiming it as their own um there's often very clickbaity or questionable news um, and fake news that comes out especially on what was twitter which i still can't bring myself to say x no, so i'm gonna quit twitter so you know um, and twitter and the mobocracy there and it's just a horrible horrible place to be but equally on the flip side there is some talent there doing some good things how, how do you look at the current media landscape in formula one terms is the coverage any better or worse than it than it has been in the past or do we just see more of it because of the whole social media world? I think it's different and that can mean worse because there can there can be a desperation for people to either be the first to say something or to say the most extreme thing 
to get noticed in what's a much more crowded market now, uh, even than it was when I started in 2005. That was when I got my break. Um, so, it, but it's not all bad. Uh, and I think you mentioned there how many different ways there are for people now to 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 talk to an audience. It's such a congested market that I think eventually it means if you're going to make yourself stick in this in this world, you have to be really good and really consistent. So you probably have to work harder to stand out. And I don't think that's a bad thing. There's lots of bad stuff. You mentioned it there. That, yeah, the stuff that's kind of AI voiced and the thumbnails have been photoshopped so people's faces look angry. It's not a real picture. All that stuff is bad. Most of those channels, they get the odd hit with a crazy headline or title or something like that but they don't get the returning visitors and the returning views because what people get dragged in by a fake headline and then go ah this is this is rubbish and yet like you said you're talking to a robot um so it's just it's different it's, it's different challenges i'm always determined not to think that change not to be afraid of change and not to think that change is a bad thing um it's different challenges even for us uh, and you have to be out ready to move at an almost frightening pace now. You know, I I worked through really the industry's transition from print to digital, and that took years. The changes now take months, sometimes weeks, and you have to be ready to react. And you can't you can't ignore them. You can't just assume that you can you can carry on doing what you were doing for years, and that it'll all be fine five years from now. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing that I've I'm very conscious of whenever I'm talking, even on this podcast or, or not so much on this podcast, but because it, it's, you know, you can say what you want, but equally I am conscious of it that you do have to watch your words sometimes, whether it's the written word or the spoken word. And I got caught out, I told this story before on this show where I got caught out and called out. Um, I was doing a recording. It was me. It was either Harry or Tom McCluskey. I can't remember. Um, it might have even been Chris Medland. I can't. Anyway, we were chatting away and I used the word female and I got absolutely annihilated for it on uh, on Twitter. And I was like, what? I don't know what I've done. And, you know, if I've done something wrong, I apologize. But I got called out publicly on Twitter for using this, this word, which is derogatory, unless you give it context, you know, like female racing driver, which I thought I did, but maybe I didn't. You know, do you find yourself having to do a similar thing to, to really focus on what you're saying and, and how you present it for fear of repercussion? Um, that's a really good question because it's a, it's a massive reflection of how the world's changed because when you wrote for a magazine or even the early years of websites, you didn't really have to think about that accountability for everything that you say. I, I think operating in or yeah, working in fear of that is a bad thing because you'll, you'll probably end up becoming like frozen by that fear and, and, and not doing your best work. Um, but I would definitely say that the the potential for the kind of backlash you mentioned there does often make you tread very carefully and i would say i probably sometimes tread too carefully because of that almost not for fear of getting something wrong but almost not wanting to be bothered with having to deal with people wanting to pick a fight with you um that i would say that applies to social media though where you you've got a limited number of characters and like i say people are looking to take things out of context to pick a fight on the race website, one of our most popular features is when we do um, a multi-voice verdict. So we get lots of our writers, something big's happened, what's your verdict on it? And in that situation, you've got 
enough space. You have to be concise, but you've got as much room as you need to make your point. You're in control of it. And it's, it is in a slightly more controlled, a safer environment. So I would never hold back there. I'd never be afraid of sharing a real opinion there. But I certainly think twice sometimes on social media and probably sometimes in, a, in places where I don't need to think twice. That's just, that's the nature of the world we're in now, isn't it? It, it is. Unfortunately, it is. Now, as you look back at your body of work, your career to date, are you pleased? Do you look back and think, I've done well there, I've maximised all my opportunities? Or do you think you'd have done anything differently if you could rerun it? Um, I've never been asked that. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think I'd do anything differently. Like I've, that's not to say I've done anything wrong. Like I said to you at the start, I've made tons of mistakes because that's that's how you, that's one of the ways you learn. Um, but I wouldn't change any of the big decisions that I've made and the directions and paths that I've chosen. There, there were plenty of forks in the road where I could have gone, I could have gone a different way, and I could be potentially sat here talking to you as a kind of guy that's been in the F1 paddock. We talked about how many races I've been to. I could have been, I could have spent maybe ten years or something covering F1, and that was the initial goal when I was a school kid and I decided I wanted to do sort of motorsport journalism, but you get a better understanding of maybe where your strengths are, what you enjoy doing. I did 10 years of travel uh, covering various championships and I kind of felt I'd had enough of that. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of the key fundamentals, but that by no means suggests that I haven't done anything wrong or got anything wrong during that time. Now we have a final three questions, which we ask everybody that comes on the show and it throws up all sorts of different answers. Um, the first one for you, what's got you excited at this very moment? Could be anything. Doesn't have to be motorsport, work related. It could be anything. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> work things are the first ones that come to mind. Although to give you a non-work one, obviously being a Tottenham fan, I'm very excited by Tottenham under yeah. Ange Postecoglou. Um, it's mental. But what I find amazing about the whole Spurs thing is that there's, okay they've bought a few you know good signings like James Madison and stuff but then you look at some of the the old the players from last season who were total shite and suddenly under Ange they're they're like world beaters it's mental yeah I think that tells you something about the the people who were in the dugout beforehand um and you know I I wouldn't have expected in the middle of October uh to be talking about my beloved team I'm a season ticket holder uh being top of the league uh, the, the, you know, the day that Harry Kane announced he was going, um, you know, I've I've been pitch side or I've been in the ground for the majority of his rise. Absolutely adore him. Uh, my son, my son's middle name is Kane. Um, <laughs> no, I wasn't allowed. I wasn't allowed to give him a first name after him. My wife stepped in there. Um, so I was devastated when he left. But now it, it feels like, you know, it, maybe, it was, maybe it was what we needed. So, yes, non-work wise. That is what has got me excited. I dreaded traipsing across London last year to have to go and watch the games. It's much more enjoyable now. Yeah. Um, uh, unbeaten, aren't they? They're still yeah. drawn two, yeah. one, most of them. I mean, it's incredible. And, and you know, getting one over on, on Arsenal, um, amongst many other things, is, is amazing. I think James Madison is going to turn out to be one of the signings of the season. It's like absolute class act. Um, okay, cool. So Spurs, we're excited about Spurs. Let's hope they keep it up. Um, my family are also Spurs fans. Hey. So, uh, um, number two for you. How much of your success do you put down to luck and right place, right time? And how much do you put down to hard work and graft? I'm really glad that uh, because you do this question every time, I knew it was coming because I could prepare for it. And every time I've thought about it since I knew I was coming on the show, I have a different answer. So I think I have settled on about 70-30 in favour of hard work. And that is because I believe in the the cliches that um, 
you make your own luck and you know uh good fortune is kind of hard work waiting for an opportunity that sort of thing i do i do believe in all that um i think that to succeed you will need some luck along the way no matter how hard you work but if you are lazy at some point your luck would run out yeah no, I couldn't agree more. And I think I think laziness is is a killer when it comes to work, isn't it? I mean, a- any any ounce of laziness in you at some point will catch you up. Yeah. Um. And you you can't do anything without hard work, despite all those things you see pop up on YouTube ads going. You know, look at this real estate business you can invest in for no money and make yourself a millionaire. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to work hard. Yeah. Um. Last one for you, then I'll let you get on with your day. What are you scared of? Um, I have a work answer for this. It's having nothing to talk about. Yeah, that would be an issue. It'd be the absolute worst thing if, if, if things got that boring. And even in a, a, a traditionally boring season like we're having this year, there's plenty of stuff going on. I look back to 2021. One day that will be considered a classic season. What I would say once people have got over it, I don't think they ever will. But it was it was relentless. It was flat out. It was the busiest you could ever be. But there was always big stuff to talk about, big controversies, massive stories, great races, a great championship fight. And it was very rewarding. So it was really hard work. It was exhausting at times. And there were points where you just, you almost wished Lewis and Max would stop crashing into each other just for one week. Um, (laughs) But the end result of everything you did, the interest was massive. And it's really rewarding when you work that hard and that many people want to want to be involved in what you're doing. And it was, yeah, I, I look back on it fondly. Um, and yeah, so if I was afraid of something, it would be there's nothing to talk about. Glenn, thank you for joining us on the Mosa Mouth podcast. Cheers, Tim. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MNTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too. So make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.